please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture for today is John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to take a seat, and uh, Rebecca, thank you, and Nick, thank you. If you want to know the color scheme that Nick and I have chosen for a Sunday with our clothing, just text us. We'll let you know what we're planning on wearing next Sunday. <laughs> um, the, I want to say real quick, too, with the men's gathering is that's something that in the year and a half or so that Sacred Mission has existed, um, we've done two men's gatherings. Um, and I think the ladies have done like 15. <laughs> so it's a, um, we are definitely due to have another men's gathering. And one of the ways that I think about that is we, get, we gather intentionally. Like this is a real gathering of the church. And, and like we all make, we, we all say no to things to say yes to this. We all kind of orient our schedule around our gatherings. Um, and then community group is that way a lot too, is that it's, you know, like I would love to, have dinner with each one of you, and I'd love for us all to get together. And that, like, logistically would, would be hard to do that in a short amount of time. And so community groups are a way to say, hey, every week, uh, this is a part of my life where, where I know I'm gathering around brothers and sisters, and we are intentionally sharpening each other. Uh, we're getting into each other's lives. And uh, like Drew and Brittany have been a part of the community group that typically meets in our house. We were in my parents' house this last week, and a lot of our focus was praying for them. And, uh, then, uh, and there were tears, and there were powerful prayers. Um, but then the, the, uh, something like a men's gathering, I think of as just a, another way, I think, to be like a band of brothers and to, to think of the, the men of the church and, and the ladies of the church being a sisterhood um, where, where we are really intentionally getting into each other's lives. There might be friendships where it's like, well, we're not in community group together. Um, man, whatever happens on a Sunday morning, we usually don't connect very much, but, but I've just seen in gatherings like that that the Lord can really form people together. Um, and so I would, I would love for... Uh, we've had men's gatherings where like the focus was like, let's see how many clay pigeons we can bust, you know? And, and the one coming up on the 30th is very much um, not geared around like something we'll do together, but uh, I think it'll be great. It'll really just focus on us being together, looking to Jesus together um, and, and getting into each other's lives, maybe having a lot of conversations where you're getting to know each other better. And so, um, so man, I would just encourage us to look at those as being really intentional part of our discipleship, intentional ways of us actually forming together as a church and, uh, and just kind of a, a cool way th that the Lord is bringing us together. Um, and so, so yeah, we moved it to the 30th because we thought the Collins uh, Community Center would just be a great place for that. And, and there are people who meet there every day for coffee and it's like, hey, we might invite some of them to just be like, hey, why don't you stick around after coffee and we can, uh, you know, we'd love for you to be a part of this as well. So, uh, so we are in John 1 again. Uh, I, when we were kicking off the book of John, uh, we we're, we're going to do a 12-week, Lord willing, a 12-week run at the book of John leading up to Easter. 
And in 12 weeks, we're hoping to get through chapter three out of 21 chapters. And so we're, we're not, I don't feel like we're going too slow. I feel like we're going hopefully appropriately at a pace to not run by massive things. You know, it's like, you don't want to like sprint past Mount Rushmore without actually kind of like slowing down and and actually taking a good look at it. Um, And so we're not wanting to run by verses that are mountains that we need to actually pause and make sure we appreciate why that mountain is there and why it's there for each of our lives. Um, And so this is, uh, this this is this week is looking at a mountain. Uh, next week, we actually start hearing from Jesus. We start hearing from him. We start observing some things. But this is very unique to the book of John, which is a lot of things in advance before we get into the book for us to really understand who is this who is speaking? Who is he? And you could even say, what is he? Who is he? What is he? And that's going to be a part of of today. And I feel like it's critical for us to encounter him in this way in John 1. And just, we're just going to dive into the topic of theology. Okay, so it's just, this isn't becoming like a seminary classroom or a Bible college classroom, but we are going to hit the topic of theology. And theology is just a fancy word that means God thought or studying about God, learning about God. So biology is the study of life. Bio, life, ology, the study of. So biology is a study of or or knowledge of life. Theology is just the study of God, learning about God. And in the history of people walking with Jesus for 2,000 years, what has been observable is ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And if you in your thoughts of God, if me in my thoughts of God in a few areas are off a little bit, when you play that out and you walk down that road, you'll realize you stop walking with Jesus. And when you get to the end of the road, you've stopped walking with Jesus. And what a cult is, is a cult are people who would say they are Christians walking with Jesus who are not walking with Jesus. And I know there's a lot to unpack there, but typically where a cult forms as a cult, and all cults in this area are ones who claim to be Christian, but have departed from Jesus or what Jesus even taught us a long time ago. And one of the areas that you just say, man, if you go down this road, it will be a road where you stop walking with Jesus towards the end of the road. One of the topics is on the Trinity. If you say, hey, I love Jesus and I just fully reject the Trinity. I don't believe that we have one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I reject that. And I would just say, man, out of love, What has been observable for 2,000 years of people walking with Jesus is if you walk down that road, at the end of the road, you will not be walking with Jesus. Somewhere along the way, you've like clung to that over clinging to Jesus because ideas have consequences. And when he teaches us, we need to listen. (laughs) And because it actually really has huge impact on our life, even on January 17th, 2021. So the Trinity is a huge 
impact of our life that we're like, man, I want to be lined up. And yeah, there's grace and mercy. I'm not saying like it's fatalistic. I've been in, I've been pastor of churches where people spent their entire adult life in a cult. And by God's grace, they're like, oh, wow, I just realized I'm in a cult. I need to actually get back with Jesus. And, uh, and man, those are great stories of restoration, great stories of redemption. So to, today is a second area, not the Trinity, but today is another area that we're going to encounter in John 1 that I would say is critical. Now, we'll grow in it. It doesn't mean we have to understand it fully on day one, but we should never for a lifetime reject it. If we reject it, it is very dangerous because we're rejecting what Jesus is teaching us in the very core of who he is. And that is this big word called the hypostatic union of Jesus. So if people are like, hey, what was church about today? It's like, well, the hypostatic union of Jesus. And it's like, wow, that had any bearing on your life at all? And hopefully we could say actually a tremendous bearing on my life. So let's look at John chapter one. We're going to get started in this at verse 14 of John one. It's such a key verse for us here uh, on the hypostatic union of Jesus, why it matters in rural central Iowa today. And we're just going to go into the first nine words initially. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the one who was with the Father, the one who created everything, as we've already seen, the one who is God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I just want to, first of all, been like, have you ever like just spent time thinking about that? I know when I grew up stuff, I was like, man, I spent a lot of time thinking about sports. I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, all sorts of hobbies. Haven't spent a lot of time just thinking about Jesus becoming man. Hasn't really been anything that I've focused on with my thinking. And uh, some have called this, Men like C.S. Lewis, some have called this the greatest mystery in all of existence. The greatest mystery in all of existence is those, first, those nine words. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's one of the reasons why it's so, is how can God become a man? How can God become a man? Jesus being fully God, it means things. It means a bunch of things. It means that he is omnipresent. Scripture teaches us that his presence, that there's nowhere you can go, nowhere on this earth, there's nowhere you can go where he'd be like, hey, where'd you go? I I lost track of you. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere that we can go where his presence is not all powerful. He's eternal. Being God in itself is eternal. So if if anybody ever came up to me, like some star, like movie star, music star, whatever, and was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm God. And and I'd be like, really? Yeah, man. Like, look, I'm awesome. I'm God. I'd be like, do you have a birthday? Oh, yeah, I'm God. And I'd be like, well, you're obviously not God because a definition of God is you are eternal, which means you have no beginning. If you have a beginning, you're a part of creation, which means you're a creature, 
You might exist forever, which is called being immortal, but being eternal means you have no beginning. And so God becoming a man, what we're realizing is we're talking about an eternal one. We're talking about him having no beginning. And eternal as well means you cannot die. It would be impossible for an eternal being to die. These things are true of God. He is perfect. He makes no mistakes. These are all accurate attributes that are true of God. And I, just like, it's no surprise to anyone, I will never be confused of being God. <laughs> because everything that I mentioned is not true of me. Uh, all of these things are very far from me. Uh, things that are true of mankind. People have a beginning, right? People are not all powerful. People are confined to only be at one place at a time. Social media makes us think we can be everywhere, which kind of makes us think we can be God, but actually like we're made to be at one time, at one place. People die. People are not eternal. People are immortal. People have a beginning, but will live forever somewhere. So people are immortal, which should take our breath away when we even interact with each other that we're interacting with immortal beings. Um, immortal, but not eternal. So this huge question is how can God, how can Jesus, how can he become flesh and dwell among us? And before there was Netflix, before there was Facebook, before there was Instagram, before there was among us, <laughs> that you could be the imposter, uh, people actually would sit around and think deeply about this. And thankfully, like we're thinking deeply about this today. Because I think if we aren't thinking about these aspects it might not uh, give us the appreciation that we need to have. So in the fifth and sixth centuries, so we're gonna go back to the fifth and sixth centuries, so much of the world was thinking about this, so much of the world was talking about this, is who is Jesus? What is Jesus? When I look into his eyes, what am I looking at? Who am I looking at? Is he God? Is he man? By them, by God becoming man, did it mess up him being God? And maybe he's like 50% God or, or maybe he like isn't God anymore or like maybe he isn't man anymore or like when I'm looking at Jesus, like what am I looking at? How should I think of him? And there's been some very interesting ways that in the fifth century, people were thinking, hey, just so your brain doesn't hurt, here's how you should think of Jesus. So there's this thing called Apollinarianism. <laughs> Big words, but simple kind of concepts. Apollinarianism was introduced in the fifth century as a way for people to think about Jesus. And uh, the way, the simple way to think of Apollinarianism is God was wearing a man suit. Some people call it God in a bod. So, so really what happened um, in the incarnation was you have 100% God coming to earth and just kind of putting on a man suit. So when you go up to him and when you're looking in his eyes, you are looking at completely God and he's wearing a man suit. So you don't have to worry about like what it would mean for, for our eternal God to step into time-bound humanity and all of these things. Like, it's like, no, he just, he just wore a man suit. Now, a huge problem with this view 
is that none of us just are wearing a man suit. If all of us were just wearing people suits, I know this sounds kind of, <laughs> I didn't think we'd think about this at church today, but uh, if, if all of us were just our skin, then Jesus would be a great savior for us. But we're completely people. We're 100% people. And what we've been told is that Jesus is clearly here to pay the penalties of all people, to save every part of us completely. And so we're entire people. We would need an entire person to represent us, to redeem us. Jesus would need to be all of us, completely a person, to represent all of us on the cross. So a guy named Nestorius is like, yeah, Apollinarius doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, Nestorius came up to the scene and he's like, I, I got to figure it out. Here's a more simple way to think of Jesus. Christ, God, Christ was coming down from heaven and Christ looked around and was like, oh, look at this carpenter Jesus. He seems like he has what it takes. So Christ went up to Jesus and was like, hey, what if we kind of duct tape ourselves together and we are Jesus Christ for the next few years? And like when you're thirsty, you can drink some water. And uh, when miracles had to have to be performed, I'll, I'll let you do that. And then like right at the cross, like I'll let you, Jesus, die on the cross and I'll, I'll go up to heaven. And like, like we could have Jesus and Christ together um, and there, there's a lot of problems with this view of one being just this like schizophrenia Jesus that is like you're looking at one person, but it's like multiple personalities. And if you wanted to pray, you'd be like, am I praying to the God? Am I praying to man? Like, oh, if you're a man right now, can you get God so that I can have my prayers be answered? Um, and so, so this third guy, Eutychus, surfaced. And all of these had thousands of followers in the fifth century. All of these had thousands of followers who were like, this is what happened in John 1.14. Eutychus comes to the scene and a lot of people really liked what he said, but he said, hey, Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is 100% man. And at the incarnation, they kind of went into a blender. And 100% God and 100% man like mixed so much that you can never again tell the difference you can never see where there's God or see where there's man. It's now this new third substance, this, this new type of being we've never seen before, this new third substance. And a huge problem with this third substance is that you don't have God anymore, you don't have man anymore, and he's the perfect savior for ones who don't exist. So it's like if, if you're this third substance, you have a great savior, but I'm not, I'm a person. I'm a human, and I need a human to represent me, human to live the life that I couldn't live. And so Eutychus as well was like, well, hey, that might've been like a cutesy way to think about it, but ideas have consequences. And so in 451 AD, um, in 451 AD, there was this huge gathering of people who love and follow Jesus. And these people gathered at a place called Chalcedon, which is now a suburb of Istanbul, Turkey. And in 451, these people got together and said, what has Jesus taught us about who he is? What does the Bible teach us about who he is? 
when I look at Jesus before he says anything, before he does anything, who am I looking at? And John wants us to make sure it is crystal clear to us. And the people in Chalcedon, the church at the time said, this is what Jesus has taught us. And so this is called the the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, It's even on our website when people are like, hey, what do you believe? We have like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Creed as being historical. Not, they didn't create anything, but they represented what the Bible teaches and what we have been taught. And gratefully for centuries, people have said, yes, this is him. It's cutting edge and it is who he is. And this is part of the Chalcedonian Creed. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion. He was able as fully God to become fully man. And when you look at him, he's not confused. He's not confused how that interacts. Without confusion, without change, taking on one didn't nullify the other, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union the hypostatic union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, one substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God the word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and this creed of the fathers has handed down to us and other creeds that were handed down to us. So uh, I find this beautiful and powerful. And what is amazing, if Jesus walked in right now, like Jason is, (laughs) and we would look at him and be just in awe at who is walking in and what he is. Before he does anything and says anything, we should just fall to our knees, be almost hard to take a breath because God has walked into the room and he's walked into the room completely like us. And that in itself is just such grace because he didn't do that because he was looking for something new to do. He did that because of his crazy love for us. And that he is, he, this wasn't like a short-term thing. He, he has a resurrected body, which means when, when God became man and dwelt among us, he became man forever. Like in heaven, we will be looking at a man when we look at Jesus and it will forever remind us the lengths that he went for us to redeem us, to rescue us. And so, um, so it's just the first nine words, but... I, I felt like it's worth the time to recognize like we have to, when we look at Jesus, not have this small moral teacher view. John is going out of his way in chapter one to say, we must see him as he told us he is. He is completely 100% God. Colossians 2 tells us in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So when we look into eyes, we're looking into our creator's eyes. And when we're looking into his eyes, we, we're looking into the eyes of a man. A man that is completely 100% a human like us. Like us in every way, except for sinning. The union, called the Hypestack Union, the union of God and man in one person happened without ruining either, without changing either. Jesus marvelously is God 
to fix what needs to be fixed and as man to rescue us. Fully man forever to stand in our place. And he does all this because of his love for us. 100% God, 100% in control, 100% able to fix, redeem, restore, 100% man. He's 100% getting us. You can't be like, well, Jesus, you're God. You don't get me. He's 100% man, fully gets us. Fully able, 100% to understand what we're going through. And he dwells among us. Look back at verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love that, I mean, this is written decades after John walked with Jesus, and I love that his disciples, the people who first spent time with us, with him, many of us today who have seen his glory, spent time with him, we've seen his power, we've seen the weight of his glory. This word glory is, is hearkening back to, in the Old Testament, a word that was kavod. And kavod means glory, but it, it, it kind of carries a sense of weight, I don't feel like you've ever, there's been times I've been in this gym where it's like such a emotionally charged uh, sporting event that it just feels, you feel it in the room. You, you feel the anticipation in the room. You, you just, you feel the energy in the room and, and it's like a heaviness that's just descending. And, and this is the word glory is like, we have seen his, we have felt his heaviness in all rooms as they were spending time with, with him, the glory that can only come from the second person of the Trinity sent from the Father. And then, and then the way that they chose to best describe when you see his glory is full of grace and truth. I, I mean, <laughs> imagine going up to somebody and being like, hey, I, I, if someone's like, I, I hear that you know some things about Jesus and I hear that like Jesus has done something for you. Like, how would you describe Jesus to me? You know, I mean, you could be like, oh gosh. Uh, uh, what I love here is like the way Jesus is described to us is he is full of grace and full of truth. Like, I mean, of all the words that could be chosen, he's full of grace and full of truth. And, and just that word grace, it's like, it's like, man, the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you realize you're getting what you don't deserve. That's been my experience. The closer I get to him, the closer I realize I shouldn't have this access. I shouldn't have this affection. I shouldn't have this forgiveness. You're giving me what I don't deserve. Full of grace. Not like he like has some grace and you'll see it occasionally when you're on his good side. No, he's, he's like full of grace. You can never experience him in a way where you're not experiencing his grace. And he is full of truth. He will never lie to you. He will never manipulate you. He will never deceive you. In an age where truth feels like maybe one of the shakiest words you can utter, Jesus becoming flesh, dwelling among us, gives us a place, an epicenter of truth, full of truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him cried out, a prophet that they respected, John the Baptist. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. You might think we're cousins and I'm a little older than him, born a few months before him. 
He's the ancient of days. He way outranks me. Uh, don't, don't forget who we're dealing with as we start hearing him speaking to us. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Like Jesus is gonna, we're gonna see Jesus do radical things. We're gonna see Jesus truly be revolutionary and be killed for it. We're gonna see Jesus, what seems to be turn the world upside down, which is more accurately seen as turning the world right side up. We're gonna see Jesus do these things. And on the front end again, it's saying like, as we step into this, we have all received from his fullness, grace upon grace. And man, I just, um, I think it's good for us, even verse 16, to like let that be, be a, a start, like some introspection and then let that be encouragement, but just to be like, can you say that? Maybe say, man, I could say that for a season. I said that several years ago. Or like, what would it look like for each of us to say that right now? What would it look like for each of us to say that right now? If, if everybody in the room knew exactly what you've been thinking, exactly what you've been doing, exactly what's been being done to you, possibly, like for you to get to a place to say, man, all I can say is from him, I've received grace upon grace. It's like, it's like waves of an ocean just keep crashing over me of me being allowed to be, have access where I don't belong there. Being able to, uh, to, to feel things that I shouldn't feel from, from him, but that I do because of who he is and what he's done for me. And his grace should change us. We should, um, would each of us, would people be able to point at us and say, the grace that they are receiving is scandalous? Like we had, I was a pastor with a, a friend of mine in Oklahoma City who had spent years on the streets as a heroin addict and stolen cars from people that he was preaching to and stuff. And I, one day we received a letter that was like, um, hey, if you knew the person like I did, you would never allow them to get up and speak. And I, I remember we were all like, praise Jesus. I mean, it doesn't justify anything but what it shows is he has received grace upon grace that is scandalous. That person's allowed to speak at a church? Do they know what they've done? It's like Jesus knows what they've done. And man, they're receiving grace upon grace. Now, is it grace that should have us run straight into sin knowing that he is gracious? No, like it's grace that should actually really humble us and change us and have us desire holiness, desire us to live in the life knowing what our life has cost him. Receiving his grace changes us. It begins to transform us. When his life becomes our life, his grace becomes the grace that we live in. We don't live in past regrets. We don't live in unknown futures. We don't know, we don't live in what's been said to us or being said to us. We don't live in what we've said to other people. Like, what would it look like for us to like take up residence in that grace? the one that is full of grace and truth. It's like if we bump into someone and they're like, hey, I'm going to the Rockies to look for truth. You know, I'm gonna try and find myself and I'm gonna try and find the meaning of all of this and all this. I'd say, well, I hope you meet him. You know, it's not gonna be like, well, I hope you have some revelation during the sunrise. I'd say, I hope you meet him. 
the one, the center of grace and truth. Um, Then verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law here, it, it could be seen as evil. The law is full of grace. Jesus himself, the word, directed the word of God, which included, like Jesus directed Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. So, but the, the way that I think verse 17 is pointing us is uh, Galatians 3.24 tells us some important things about the law. Galatians 3.24 says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law graciously kept us in this place of walking with God. The law kept people in that place until Christ came, until grace and truth walked before us, invited us to follow him chose us for his purposes. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Elijah was allowed to see just the back of God's robe, uh, but people were taught, people knew, if I fully see the Father, that'll be my last breath. I can't behold such glory. I can't behold that presence and live And here, no one has ever seen God, but the only God, our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the only God who is at the Father's side, he is making him known. He is the one whose eyes we can look into and see his eyes fill with tears as he is is walking with us. He's full of grace. He's at the Father's side. He's making him known to us that all may experience grace, that all may walk with truth, that all would behold his glory. And I, I think that our like, response is just, where am I in this? Where do I find myself in who he is? Where do I find myself in this story? Uh, maybe a question is, where do I need to experience his grace? Where do I need to get what I don't deserve? That could be being real with him, confessing things to him where he could reject you but gratefully, you know, even in advance, like he's full of grace. He's gonna forgive me. He's, he's not gonna make me do penance. He did all of that on the cross. He's actually gonna say, hey, I paid for that. Come on, you're mine. Where do you need to experience grace? Um, where do you need to have access where you shouldn't be allowed? Maybe you're like, hey, I don't really pray because... Um, you know, I, I think like other people probably need his attention more than I need his attention or something. Like, I mean, that's kind of a common way that kind of working hard Midwesterners can think that way is like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of got my stuff going okay. I'm sure that person really needs to pray and have access to God. But where is it like, no, I need to like run into his presence and boldly pray because, uh, because of his grace I'm gonna step into places where I shouldn't even be allowed to go, but I'm going boldly because of who he is. Where do we need to experience his grace? Uh, What areas of our lives need to feel the weight of his glory? Where it's like, man, I find when something just feels heavy on me, like I go to bed thinking about it, I wake up thinking about it, I hope when I wake up the next day, I won't be thinking about it, but I'm thinking about it, and it's just like, ugh. When does it feel like we're gonna walk out of this cloud 
And I find like it's times where it's like, oh, I need his cloud to be heavy on me. I need his glory to be heavy on me because as it won't replace that, but it'll put it in perspective and he'll give me what I need for that moment. And then where do you need just the fullness of his truth? I mean, obviously it's a crazy political time and climate. Um, doesn't mean we should, we should just uh, hit the eject button, but uh, putting our hopes in the truth of any political movement even the best of movements, if you designed it exactly the way you wanted it to be, when you play it out, it wouldn't be Jesus. It wouldn't be the one that's full of grace and truth. He is our source. From that source, we can go and live and move and speak. But, but where do I need the fullness of his truth to speak clearer and louder than, than any other things around me? All of these are found in him. So let me pray and just ask him to do work in us. Lord, we, we give all of this to you. I do really look forward to us stepping into um, hearing you speak, hearing what you're doing. But Lord, just in who you are, in, in, in it, it just the, the way that you've revealed yourself to us, you are, you're the one that made us and you're the one that became completely like us so that you could... We could never say something to you where you wouldn't say, hey, I, I understand that. I, I know what that's like. Even you are without sin, which, uh, well, Lord, I believe that you probably know about sin more intimately because I don't, I, I don't resist sin nearly like you did. I give into it way too quickly, and you resisted it for a lifetime. And so even in our sin, Lord, you are so, so well acquainted with us, so knowledgeable of us, so kind to us. And so, Lord, would we truly commune with you? Would we come to you? Would we be changed by you from the inside out? Would our community be changed by you? For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Man, if anything, like came up. I know this was a little denser of a week, um, but, but because John 1.14 and just the passages here, I mean, it, Lord, like you might even want to listen to some of this later and, and, and just ponder, ponder more throughout the week about this, talk in our community groups and stuff. But, um, but man, I, the incredible thing that Jesus gives us is, is we get to commune with him through so many ways, through bowing our knee to him, giving our lives to him, and then also tangibly coming and taking communion. And so, uh, man, we're open. I'm open to stay as long as we need to stay um, and uh, pray, talk, maybe come alongside with ways that you can get to Jesus from where you're at right now. Um, what, what I would say is there's a warning on communion not to come too quickly to the table. We should look to him. We should look to him to search us. And then if your life has been given to him, like come to the table. We have wine or juice, obey your conscience. It's a cup within a cup, so you'll remove it and have the bread and the wine or juice. And then we'll remain standing and take it together. If you're not yet at this time a follower of Jesus, I would just encourage you instead of coming here, come to Jesus, give your life to him. So let's all respond. Let's come to him.